This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway and the new ESV Bible app. The ESV Bible app is designed to help you engage with God's Word on a deeper level, offering elegant, intuitive features to personalize your study, including multiple audio recordings of the full ESV text, audio playlists, customizable background music, daily reading plans, and more. Download the ESV Bible app on your phone or tablet, or visit esv.org to get started. Welcome to Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for resolute hope in an anxious age. I'm your host, Colin Hansen, and each week I'm joined by insightful guests to talk about their written work and how the gospel applies to all of life. Together, we keep looking until we see God working. Wherever you're listening, welcome. I'm glad you're here for today's conversation. He is the greatest enigma among the Founding Fathers. He is the greatest source of controversy. He is one of the greatest writers in political history anywhere around the world. He had nearly boundless confidence in rational man's ability to perceive errors in traditional belief, according to historian Thomas Kidd. And he did more than any other founder to defend religious freedom for evangelical Christians. He might be regarded as a, quote, ethical Christian, who couldn't imagine that anyone truly believed in the Trinity. He was forward-thinking in the Louisiana Purchase, but he didn't make good predictions in religion, such as, I trust there is not a young man now living in the United States who will not die a Unitarian. Oops. Now, of course, we're talking about Thomas Jefferson, and the real wall of separation in American politics and religion concerns his own lofty writings on freedom when compared to his practice of slaveholding. These contradictions make him the subject of many biographies, including the most recent from Tommy Kidd, Thomas Jefferson, A Biography of Spirit and Flesh, published by Yale University Press. What a great subtitle, by the way. And Dr. Kidd is research professor of church history at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City and the author of many outstanding works, including The Great Awakening, The Roots of Evangelical History in Colonial America. Uh, Tommy is one of my favorite historians, and I'm delighted to invite him to Gospel Bound to discuss Jefferson's views on Christianity and politics, and we'll talk a bit about how Christians should approach history in general. Tommy, thanks for joining me on Gospel Bound. Thanks for having me. Simply put, should we admire Thomas Jefferson? <laughs> well, there's no simple answer to that. And and uh, I mean, especially in our current culture, we seem to have a really hard time uh, knowing what to do with people like Jefferson, who, uh, for for my money, is, is quite admirable in uh, some important and enduring ways. And his legacy has been used for for good uh, by people like Abraham Lincoln and Martin Luther King Jr. Um, But especially in his personal life, um, he did things that were uh, sinful and despicable. Um, And and so, uh, you know, generally we we go to one extreme or another with people like this. We go to extremes about everything in America these days, but but we either tend to cancel them or or we uh, react with sort of patriotic apologetics and say, you know, any anything negative you say about one of these people is a lie. Um, so uh, we, we really struggle with that these days. Um, but I, you know, I would say there there are some things about Jefferson that we still should admire, 
while being candid about some of the dreadful things that he, he did in his life. I think this this um, this next question is related to the first. Did he actually believe what he wrote? Um, one of the things you you argue is this: the dissonance between stated belief and practiced reality is perhaps more acute for Jefferson than than any other American ever. Now, I think at some level, if this were in our own day with our understanding of politics, we'd say he was just a total cynic. But I think what's different about that era is that all of these men put their lives on the line. They're all of their fortunes, their very lives, their family, everything was on the line if they lost. So how do you explain that? Well, I think it's it's partly that when he says all men are created equal, uh, I think he has a, a narrower immediate implication of that than what we hear today. Um, and, and and he realized, I think, that, that there were different levels at which that operated. I mean, the most immediate thing that he means by that is it's a political statement about the people who are active in Anglo-American politics. And that means generally white property owning men. Uh, those men are created equal. People like Jefferson are created equal. Um, and and he says that and, and means that because really in the political sphere to Jefferson, that's that's all that that mattered. Those were the people who were involved. Um, and, and so, you know, Jefferson did not see everyone and everything as political. He saw just a, a relatively small group of people in Britain and America is having a public political life. Um, and there were people just like him. Now, the the problem with that, and, and I again, I think Jefferson grasped this problem, is that Jefferson turns to the language of creation in order to make that point. And so uh, uh, all men are created equal. And, and we, you know, Jefferson knows, we know that that's a, a universal claim. Uh, it certainly, you know, by the Genesis account includes women uh, because, you know, in, male and female, he created them. Um, and if you accept the the unitary origins of the human race, um, which Jefferson actually raised questions about, but he knew that most Christians accepted the, the Adam and Eve account in some form or fashion. Um, and, and so that would include all races. Um, but Jefferson also, as the great wordsmith that he was, knew that putting it on that kind of uh, universal theological basis was the strongest argument you could possibly make for human equality. And so he did it, and it was lovely, and it was powerful, and it res has resonated through American history, but it immediately gave people ideas in 1776. Um for instance, the, the African-American pastor Lemuel Haynes uh, wrote Liberty Further Extended in 1776, saying, oh, well, if all men are created equal, then we shouldn't have slavery. <laughs> you could just imagine Jefferson, wait a minute, that's not what we're talking about. So it, it, it kind of got out of control, out of his hands almost immediately as soon as he said it. Speaking of something that's gotten out of hand, Jefferson's views on the separation of church and state. I know it's a broad question, but I know you can answer that succinctly as well. <laughs> well, Jefferson is a, 
the founding era is, uh, uh, you know, one of two of the greatest champions of, of religious liberty, for sure. And the religious liberty for Jefferson uh, meant that, that the government should not be policing people's religious beliefs, uh, shouldn't be calling balls and strikes on doctrinal issues. Um, and it also meant that he wanted to abolish all the state established churches, in particular Virginia's. Um, and so he wrote the bill for establishing religious freedom. And then in 1786, Madison got it passed through uh, the Virginia legislature. And the, the Anglican Church, the Church of England, had been this, the state established church in Virginia uh, since the colony's founding. And uh, now they say we're not going to have an official denomination um, and we're not going to have any civil penalties for uh, people having aberrant uh, doctrinal beliefs, um, but that we're going to maximize people's religious freedom and and take a step away from government-run religion. Um, to Jefferson, that did not mean uh, the public absence of religion. It certainly didn't mean government hostility towards religion, because you know part of what Jefferson is trying to do is to get the government to stop persecuting, uh, most obviously, the Baptists. Um, who Jefferson was certainly no evangelical and no Baptist, but but he thought it was uh, loathsome that that the Virginia government was actively persecuting Baptists on the eve of the revolution with dozens of Baptist ministers being thrown in jail for illegal preaching. He thought this is ridiculous. The, these people are pre preaching sort of a, an, a totally acceptable version of Christianity, um, and, and Jefferson also knew that if they came after the Baptists, they would also come after him because he didn't believe in the Trinity or the divinity of Christ or the resurrection. So he thought, you know, we, we just need to get the government out of the business of, of policing people's beliefs and just, uh, you know, maximize uh, free exercise of religion. And, and in that, that, that was something that Baptists in particular, but a number of evangelicals, uh, not only allied with with Jefferson on that, but but absolutely celebrated him because of his courageous defense of evangelical dissenters. Now, even as a religious skeptic himself, he did seem to have a role for Christianity, specifically even in government. Um, I mean, you mentioned that, or I guess more broadly, concept of religion, certainly in the Declaration there, but you mentioned specifically the role that he saw Christianity playing in civilizing in his understanding, the frontier. Um, so could you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, Jefferson believed, like virtually everyone in his world, that uh, Christianity was uh, essential to uh, virtue for most Americans. So, uh, you, you know, how, how are you going, where do you base our broad public ideas about morality and virtue, uh, honesty, you know, neighborly love, those kind of things. It's, 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 you don't have to make anything up. It's just within the Christian tradition. And so education was profoundly Christian. Uh, and and even uh, in a strange instance in the early 1800s that Jefferson uh, agreed to government funding for a, a Catholic mission, actually, among the Kaskaskia Indians um, for a, a missionary priest and in, in schools and so forth. And, and actually, thought that it was fine for the government to even give money for that sort of thing, which I'm not I'm not sure 
I would think that's a good idea, but <laughs> but uh, but but that shows you how much that Jefferson is not trying to eradicate religion or Christianity. That's for sure. And and in his first inaugural address, I think maybe it's the most important moment where he he talks about what are the strengths of our republic, um, and and he gives many instances. But he says it's capped by our benign religion, and by that he meant Christianity, um, which inculcates virtue. I mean, and so the idea is if you're going to have a republic where the people are sovereign, you have to have a virtuous people. And for most regular people, uh, the, the, the resource of virtue is their faith. Now, why do you think in light of this, why is Jefferson remembered more as a skeptic of religion than as a champion of religious freedom that benefited evangelicals, especially Baptists? Because they're both such a major part of his legacy one of them having massive positive effects for people like you and me and institutions that we serve. Um, but I don't really think many evangelicals would recall that about him. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it has more to do with the political alignments that we have today um, where y you can't really imagine someone who today who is both heterodox personally uh, and also a great champion of religious liberty and free exercise of religion. Um, so this this, I think, helps to account for the polarized views of Jefferson, which are totally typical and replicated in other historical figures where the secular left claims him as being heterodox, which he was. Uh, and and then, uh, you know, being an entirely uh, secular person as far as his view of public life in America. And that's wrong. Uh, you know, conversely, the Christian right can't imagine someone being a great defender of religious liberty and being heterodox. And so they, they say he was a great defender of religious liberty and, 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 and all this, although sometimes they get nervous about the wall of separation of church and state, uh, which he said in an 1802 letter to evangelical Baptists, by the way. Um, and, and so they, they try to figure out some way to say that Jefferson is actually a traditional Christian, which is completely wrong. Um, and and it, it's it's the epitome of trying to wedge a historical figure like Jefferson into today's culture and political alignments, which is uh, just bad history 101. I mean, who are the political and or religious descendants of Jefferson today? Because he seems difficult to map for the reasons you just described right there onto our current moment. I mean, even for me growing up, I still recall all of the Jefferson Jackson dinners the Democratic Party used to do. I don't think that's happening much anymore. Um, they don't seem to want to claim him as their founder. Technically speaking, he didn't found the Democratic Party, but effectively he did. Um, how does I mean, how is he supposed to fit um, today? He mostly doesn't. I, I think you, you just have to start with Jefferson as he's not like anybody you know today. Um, I mean, I do think that there, you know, back in the in the 90s uh, that, you know, there was this moment when uh, Bill Clinton and the Democratic Congress passed the Re Religious Freedom Restoration Act, um, which I think was a good moment for religious liberty. And that that was, you know, a, a moment in time when I think Democrats saw threats to religious liberty not only for Christians, but for, you know, more minority uh, religious groups. And 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 so which I'm, I'm perfectly happy for religious liberty to be defended for all those groups. And so 
Um, but but I, I think in the past 20 years, we've really settled more into these. If you're on the left, then you're also rigidly secularist and I mean that and, and Christian right acts the way that it does. Um, and that that I think is unfortunate because I, I think Jefferson is, you know, he's a classical liberal, um, definitely not a traditional Christian, but in a Lockean sense. Um, and and also through the experience of watching the Baptists be persecuted in Virginia, um, he he develops a really robust ideal of religious liberty for all, uh, which which I think is you know a wonderful part of the American tradition. Well, before I come back to Jefferson, I want to ask a couple questions about historiography here. Um, one is that it it feels as though. You can either choose the 1619 Project approach to history or else the Mount Rushmore great men etched in stone uh, vision. How do you think Christians ought to be viewing history, especially in this environment? Well, I'm all for uh, being candid uh, about the past. Um, Whitfield would be a good example of that in your work. And and I was, you know, criticized by, by certain outlets for being, you know, too harsh about Whitfield's a problematic relationship to slavery and slave owning. Um, but but I, Whitfield's another example of somebody who I admire quite a lot, but I think his connection to slavery was d- despicable um, and it, because he really was a pro-slavery activist um, as he was, you know, leading the First Great Awakening. So, um, so you know, with, with things like the 1619 Project, I mean, if, if the idea is it would be good for Americans to know when the first documented shipment of slaves came to the American colonies. I'm, I'm all for that. I, I think that that should be part of our civic memory and, and something that's widely known uh, in, in America. But uh, I guess where I draw the line is, uh, you know, when it's really the history is basically being used for partisan political uh, purposes uh, and or history is being used uh, to sort of tout our own virtue of saying, look how progressive we are because we hate the right people in the past. Uh, that, that's a pretty paltry form of, of virtue. And and I think it, it's a it's more mature, uh, you know, just even in a secular sense to be chastened by the past um, and, and to say, you know, but for the grace of God, there go I, and and to muse on what, uh, you, you know, cultural traps we might be in, um, and, and because our, our culture can convince us of things as being normative that definitely are not, and and, and certainly in a Christian sense, that's true. So uh, I, you know, I'm I can go a long way if we're talking about historical facts. Um, and and being candid about people who we even we consider our historical heroes, but it, when it becomes uh, e- e- an exercise in touting our own virtue because we condemn the right people in the past, that I, I, I can't go along with that. Now I fully expect that you will uh, shoot me down on this next question, and you're the you're the right person I trust to shoot me down on this one. Um, I was thinking about this years ago with a friend, and probably because my bent is so historical, I like to frame some of our struggles in terms of historiography. It strikes me that a lot of our political battles now and cultural battles boil down to whether you think American history is basically bad 
with some sprinkling of good or basically good with some rotten apples mixed in. Basically, it feels like some sort of fight between Howard Zinn and David Barton. It's kind of what it feels like to me. Do you see anything similar? Or again, I'm sure that's overly reductionistic, but it feels like it maps pretty often on people's instincts as it relates to politics and culture. I'm sure that that's true for um, the the popular discussions of history. And I, and I think it's increasingly true in the academic guild uh, where uh, sort of overtly partisan polemical history now is, is more rewarded uh, by history departments than, than ever before. Um, and, um, but, you know, I, I, as I've said in my previous answer, I mean, I'm ambivalent about this because um, I think there's a theological sense in which all history is basically bad because I think we're bad <laughs> right. people. Right. Um, and, and, and so, you know, I say this as a, yeah. as a Calvinist. I mean, I, I th- yeah. that that we're not good. Uh, we're not naturally good. And, and people, especially when they're given power, do bad things with it. Um, that's not universally true, but but it is often true. And that, you know, th- and there's just temptations that come with power. Um and, and so uh, I definitely wouldn't want to go in the direction of American history being uh, uniquely bad, which I think is is the tone of a lot of, uh, you know, secular historiography today uh, and this sort of, you know, self-immolation about, you, you know, who can hate America the most and, 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 and accuse the most people of being racist and so forth. Uh, I mean, I, I think all that's excessive. Um, but I, I guess that, you know, to me, I have in that sense a, a sort of theological view of, of history that um, there's only one person that I expect moral perfection from is certain carpenter's son from Nazareth. Uh, I mean, and, and everybody, what, why would it be surprising that, say, Jefferson abused his power or that Whitfield abused, abused his power? It really would be surprising if they didn't. Um, and and in that sense, history is is a warning to us, those, those of us who are granted various forms of, of power and authority to be very, very careful because the, the record historically is pretty grim about what people often do with their power. Is that not the kind of historical or historiography done by the writers of the Bible? Sure is. It sure is. I, 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 I would say that, you know, that the, for Christians looking at, at the Bible, um, you, you know, we talk about David and and and, and Peter and, and Paul and all this, but you know, with with somebody like Paul, I mean, it fits a little more easily into the kind of Christian, you know, pop Christian view of these things because he did extremely bad things and then he got converted. <laughs> and then he yeah. shaped up, you know, <laughs> I, I think what's what's I mean, uh, uh, with somebody like Whitfield, what's even more troubling is that God was doing great things through his ministry while he was actively involved in the sin of promoting slavery. Um, and that 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 is I mean, for me personally, that is a perplexing observation. Yeah. Well, I've just I've been thinking about this lately because I'm so grateful for a lot of the attention that's being put on the family, on the role of fathers, and all that kind of stuff. And then I've I'll ask people, could you give me an example of a good father in Scripture? I haven't found one yet. 
I mean, it's just, God it's just the a, father, yeah, God the Father. <laughs> but I mean, it's just amazing given the yeah. historical examples that we have. Now we can we can deduce that Joseph was a wonderful stepfather to Jesus. We don't have any evidence otherwise, but the point is we don't really have any evidence one way or another about that, just very scant in there. But yeah, other than God the Father, it's just amazing that that doesn't appear to be what the Bible's trying to do. It seems to be trying to show us something that's common to humanity in contrast to the God-man. Um, and uh, so, anyway, well, a couple of que- couple last questions on Jefferson. Um, thanks for uh, working through some of that historiographical and biblical uh, work with me. But uh, you write this, that in contrast to the classical Protestant belief in salvation by grace alone, Jefferson believed that God would save people who belate behaved morally. And this belief made Jefferson especially critical of the French reformer John Calvin. Um, I was kind of surprised to know that Jefferson had engaged with Calvin's work, though I think it's worth noting that Jefferson's biggest political opponents were descended from the Puritans in New England, which has to be, I mean, that can't be a coincidence there. Um, But I thought you also point out that he described his views as anti-Calvinist. And then, this is just hilarious, that Calvin was an atheist and that his religion was was demonic. Not like he exactly held back on this. Um, now, I was wondering, did it have anything to do with his affinity for the French revolutionaries? I mean, it could have been multiple angles he was coming at, in at this, on whether through France or his just anti-federalist view, or just straight-up theological interest. Tell us a little bit more about his anti-Calvinist views. Yeah, I mean, he it definitely is political that he finds that that the people who are his staunchest political adversaries or at least out of a Calvinist background in New England, um, and, and many of them are Calvinist pastors or, or politicians. Uh, and so he associates their politics with their theology. Um, but he also, uh, as with many things like this with Jefferson. I mean, he really does have a, 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 a clear theological stance um, that he he's just allergic to anything that to him confounds, seemingly confounds common sense. And so he thinks that, um, and I, I actually think Jefferson is right in the assumption that he's making. I mean, that it seems like most people around the world throughout time who are not converted Christians think that your good works are the key to whatever salvation looks like. I mean, that seems to be sort of the common sense of the matter until God intervenes with his grace. I mean, so so I think what Jefferson is saying is, is that this you know, idea is about election and predestination, and you, you know, you can't contribute anything to your salvation, you, you know, and it's completely out of your hand. He just says it's not reasonable. Um it, what's reasonable to Jefferson is that you do more good than bad, and you know God will see that. Um, it, it's just you know what he's saying is is unbiblical. So uh, I mean I, I think that that's where it's coming from. It's, it's similar in that sense to his view of the Trinity. I mean he says this just as, uh, it doesn't make any sense. It, it doesn't. It literally does not add up, um, and and so it can't be true. Uh, so just clarify my my um, lack of understanding here. Madison, of course, his disciple, is educated by the Calvinists, right? In Princeton? Yes, he's a Witherspoon student. Right, Witherspoon at, student. At yeah. Right, so you're going to get that Presbyterian theology and some of that common sense realism, things like that, right? 
Um, but Jefferson did have some of that, but not to the same degree as Madison. Is that correct? No, and I mean there there are Calvinist sources within Jefferson Ang- Jefferson's Anglican tradition, um, uh, um, and and you know the thirty nine ar- articles of the Anglican Church is pretty distinctively Calvinist, um, and, and 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 Jefferson is very learned in uh, in theological debate and and uh, all that. Um, and, and I don't know that he. He certainly didn't read Calvin extensively. So, I mean, I, I think he is talking about Calvinism as represented by his Federalist political enemies. Um, but his his familiarity uh, with religious topics really is mostly about the Bible itself, uh, of which he is he's deeply familiar, uh, especially in Greek. Um, he regularly reads the Bible, uh, the New Testament in Greek, and he re- regularly reads the Septuagint in Greek um, just for personal edification, uh, which is extraordinary when thinking about it. He's the president of the United States, and he's taking time to read the Bible in Greek. <laughs> um, and, and and so he, he, he really is quite learned about a, a lot of these things. But he he, when they're putting together the library of the University of Virginia, he looks to Madison uh, to tell him more about what theologians should be included. Forgive me for forgetting from the book, but was Jefferson's Anglicanism influenced by the Latitudinarian movement? I, I'm sure it it was. Broadly I mean, I speaking. think he, I, I think he, he, you know, to the extent. I mean, I don't think he defined himself as an adult as an Anglican, though he was. I mean, he was a vestryman at times in, in terms of a lay leader in the Anglican Church, but I don't. I, I I think he, you know, pretty quickly came over to that mentality of, as he said to one uh, correspondent, "I am a sect by myself." So yeah. far as I know, um, that that he's just sort of saw him as an individual ethical Christian, but part of no denomination. Yeah, I, mainly I was just wondering some of the stuff he's talking about. It was just in the air. At the time, it's like not all that it was. It wasn't entirely unique to him, even within his Anglican tradition. There were plenty of movements toward this ethical Christianity that you're yes, describing. That, that's that's right. I mean, a lot of people are interested in, and I think Ben Franklin is this yeah. way that that coming out of the Puritan tradition, right? But tired yeah. of fighting about theology and doctrine, and can't we just have an only ethical version of Christianity? And Adams himself also, um, you yes. know, famous opponent turned good friend yeah. died the same day um you know was also from that one of the lapsed puritans there as well um you know the last question I had just a little bit of scene setting in light of especially your entire corpus um i think many american evangelicals might be surprised that the founding coincided with an ebb in christian practice especially with membership church membership um i'm just wondering if you could give us a little bit more of that context in terms of the unique spiritual conditions of the late uh, 18th century. Um, you know, one of the big critics, uh, and when I did a book on revivals, I did a lot with Timothy Dwight. It was pretty eye-opening uh, to read Timothy Dwight's reflections on the state of Yale uh, when he came to be uh, came to take it over. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it depends on how you look at it, I suppose. I mean, people like Dwight are always given to sort of, I mean, the, the Puritans the and, and, and you know, the, the, the Jeremiah tradition, and it continues in the church today, you know, Everything's worse than it's ever been before, and I mean, I think you know, pastors when they say that really mean it. Um, but it's also a rhetorical move. 
uh, for for mobilizing the the, the church. But I, I do think that there was a transition time at the, at the, the you know during the revolutionary era when the traditional denominations, Congregationalists, Presbyterians, Anglicans were somewhat languishing, especially as settlement moved out onto the frontier. Um, and, and you have the coming of the, the Baptists and the Methodists who are going to one, be the ones who win the frontier for American religion. Uh, and, and they're going to ch- change the whole landscape of American religion during the Second Great Awakening. Uh, but the revolutionary period in that sense is a kind of shifting and 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 change. But, you know, if you're talking about, say, church affiliation, the percentage of church affiliation is uh, in America is much higher by, say, 1850 than it is right. in 1776. Yeah, that's what I was that's what I was trying to get at there. I think I mean, that that explains it so well that that was a unique transition period from the largely institutionally based. I mean, in a sense, revivalism of the Puritan history into the more democratic um, populist religions that that we come to know today at a time of significant Enlightenment influence through a variety of sources, English, Scottish, of course, as well as French. Um, so I think a lot of people just don't think of that because as Christians, we're so... Uh, oriented toward thinking about our origin story, both biblically, and then we kind of equate that with the American founding, not realizing the American founding's origin story from a religious perspective is is um, quite unexpected. We, we just think of so much of the, the, the founding era as being that the purview of the God and country types, and it just wasn't quite that way. <laughs> hey, I yeah, know you've done so much work on this with Barton's yeah. uh, work and everything else. Yeah, it's it's just more complicated than we tend to think. Um, but I, I mean, what I'm struck by is that you know the Methodists and Baptists in particular match the massive growth on the frontier in the early 1800s with what ha- amounts to one of the most successful church yeah. planning campaigns in human history. I mean, because as massive as the growth was, the church growth was even greater. Um, and so it's it's a neat story, but it it sort of doesn't fit, you know, because American Christians think it must have been the best at the time of the founding yeah, exactly. and then got worse from there. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's not quite that way. Not the case. I mean, you can you can see it all through American history. Um, you know, the early early 20th, you know, beginning of the 20th century, kind of high period, but then there's significant decline, and then the post-war period, mm-hmm. significant increase. And then another decline um, that's kind of, you know, been in place at least, you know, since the 90s in some ways, uh, early 90s in some ways. So I think a lot of people just I think it might be comforting to them to know that it's a series of ebbs and flows. It's not just some sort of peak and then a collapse. Right. And, of, and, and that's uh, even more true globally. I mean, just absolutely. You know, people, you know, people will say, can you think can, is, can revival happen again? And I'm like, well, it's going on and <laughs> all over the place. Iran and, and China. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so so what are you what are you talking about? Of course, it can happen. It's happening right now. And that and and, and I think I mean, this would be too, um, again, reductionistic to say, but I don't know how many people could be more attributed to that growth that peaked around 1850 and into the Civil War than Thomas Jefferson. I mean, I, I don't know how many people would be more responsible for that 
between the Louisiana Purchase and because of his views on religious liberty and defense of the Baptists and other yeah, non-establishment well, religions. Right. And I mean, Jefferson and Madison, I think, you know, in all sincerity, they made the argument that Christianity will be stronger if we get the government out of the business of promoting denominations. And they're right. It's just not the form of Christianity that Jefferson thought. <laughs> It's true. He did think. Yeah, exactly. Going back to the quote, I trust there is not a young man now living in the United States who will not die a Unitarian. Thankfully, he was wrong about that. Uh, I've been talking with uh, Tommy Kidd of Midwestern Seminary about Thomas Jefferson, a biography of spirit and flesh, uh, new from Yale University Press. Final three here. Quick ones, Tommy. How do you find calm in the storm? Oh, well, that 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 answer begins and ends with the Lord. That's, that's for sure. Um, but, uh, and, and, and his faithfulness, um, in the, in the worldly equation, I find it through fishing. Ah, nice. <laughs> I, nice. I'm, I'm quite an avid kayak fisherman. So okay. I, I, that, that's my peaceful place. You're learning to explore the, the areas of your new environs. I, yes. Exploring and catching. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Uh, and where do you find good news today? Perhaps you've already alluded to that with Iran and China and some of those global revivals. Yeah, I think when you look at the the global church, including um, immigrant populations in America, um, that, that that there's lots of reason to be encouraged. Um, you know, it's just it, it seems like the evangelical church in America, especially native born, is in some decline. Um, but as you said, I mean those those patterns come and go, and in the Lord's providence and. Um, but but there's plenty of hot spots of revival happening around the world, and some, like in Iran, is is I mean, it's, we can infer that there's even a lot more going on there than can be documented. So there, there's reason to be encouraged. And finally, what's the last great book you've read? I read a, a terrific a book about uh, I forget the author, but it was about the the background to Dostoevsky's uh, uh, Crime and Punishment. I, I think the book was called The Center and the Saint. Um, and I'm I'm not a Dostoevsky expert, but I am a big fan of Dostoevsky. So so I love you know on my free time, quote unquote, which basically means my commute. Uh, I I listen to a lot of books like that. Wonderful. And Tommy Kidd has been my guest on Gospel Bound, talking about Thomas Jefferson, a biography of spirit and flesh. Thanks, Tommy. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to this episode of Gospel Bound. For more interviews and to sign up for my newsletter, head over to tgc.org slash gospelbound. Rate and review Gospel Bound on your favorite podcast platform so others can join the conversation. Until next time, remember, when we're bound to the gospel, we abound in hope. Thank you.